the prayers of Paul. We've gone and visited different cities. We've gone and visited Thessalonica, where Paul was there for just maybe a weekend or so before he was torn away from them because of his preaching. He had to be let out of the city by night because they didn't like his preaching and they wanted him out. So he fled to another city by night. They probably had guards stationed at every place, every store, every gate of the city looking for Paul. So we spent two weeks there, and there what we learned about Paul is we saw a pastor's heart. We saw this parental, uh, this fatherly care for the people at Thessalonica, people he only stayed with for a little while. And then we saw in Ephesus, uh, the second city that we visited, Paul going in and spending three years there. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. They were steeped in what we know as the occult. And so all of their lives consisted of magic and spells. And this is what characterized their life. This is way different for us in 21st century America today. You don't go into someone's house and see idols set up in everybody's house. You might see a TV, but not idols. You don't see uh, uh, shrines dedicated to the goddess Artemis. There was a public book burning of all of the magic books, which totaled probably around $6 million dollars which tells you something about where the Ephesians stood when it came to religion. They loved the worship of the false god or goddess, Diana. But we come to Colossae today. We move away from Ephesus. And if you've noticed by now, I like spending about two weeks in each city. Paul likes spending a lot of time in each city. But for our sake and our purposes this morning, we're going to be in Colossae looking at Paul's prayer for them. Why are we focused on the prayers of Paul? Why do we need to know how to pray? Why is the Bible teaching us how to pray? Well, one, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to pray. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the Lord expelled Adam and Eve out of the garden, blocking the way for them to come back into fellowship with God. And so at this point, because of sin, because sin has entered through Adam and his direct disobedience to God, everyone is now alienated from communion with God. What we've done instead is we have taken what we know about God, the true and the living God, and we have suppressed it in unrighteousness, the Bible says. And we have traded what we could learn about God for idols and for everything else. And this is why you have so many false religions in our world today. And so prayer invites believers to come back into the presence of the Lord, to have communion with him, not just communion where you drink the bread and the wine, but real deep fellowship with him, talking with God, knowing God. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, let him that boasts, not boast in the things that he has, not let him not boast in what he knows, but let him boast in this and that he knows me and understands me. And the only way that you can get there is if the Lord goes into the presence of God for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then turns around and says, come. And that's what he does this morning. What we're witnessing when Paul goes from city to city in real time and in real historic space, even 2,000 years later, 
is the sovereign rule of God as the gospel, the good news about what Christ Jesus has done, goes from city to city. As the Roman Empire is expanding, acquiring new lands, as their foreign policies are being issued from Rome, the gospel, the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he saves sinners, people who don't deserve to be in the presence of God, is going out, and in every city, a camp is being set up, a congregation built up, the kingdom of God being built up in Thessalonica, in Ephesus, and now we are here in Colossae. So where is Colossae? Well, Ephesus is on the western side of Asia Minor, where Turkey is today. But if you travel about an hour and a half to, by, by car, Paul didn't have a car, obviously, but if you travel east an hour and a half, you'll get to the three main cities during that time. It's Colossae on the bottom. You have Laodicea, which we all know or probably familiar with as the church that the Lord rebuked in the book of Revelation. And then you have another church called Hierapolis or another city. Well, Laodicea ranks first, then Hierapolis, and then Colossae. Colossae used to be a big, uh, a big city, big time. And somehow, over the years, it decreased in significance as it was overshadowed by Laodicea. And Laodicea would be something like a New York City. Really nice. Really nice place to be. You get the fashion there, like a Milan in in Italy. You get your fashion there. You get your clothes there. You get some really good things over there. But Colossae, it was, it used to be. And so what happens in Acts chapter 19... As Luke tells us, Paul goes to Ephesus. He preaches the gospel there for three years. And his ministry was so effective that all of the residents in Asia heard the gospel, both Jew and Greek. That's amazing because there was no Instagram back then. There's no Facebook. There's no email. There's no phones. So how do all the residents of Asia, all along the eastern side of the world, hear the gospel? Well, the Lord has done some amazing things by the Apostle Paul. And it just so happened that in the Lord's providence, one man happened to be there at the right place at the right time in the Lord's providence. As he works all things together for the good of his people. And his name was Epaphras. He heard the word of the Lord and then he ran back like a, with like a marathon runner with a torch in his hand, running back in the middle of the night, all the, way, all the way back to Colossae, his hometown. And he preached the gospel and he told them that there is hope beyond this life, that there is a reason to live and that this God, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ has come and he has sent his son to die on the cross for us so that we would be rescued out of darkness, rescued out of the grip of Satan, rescued out of this hopelessness in this world and brought into the kingdom of his son who currently lives in bodily form. I remember one time I was working with a friend of mine and he said, you really believe? He stopped me. He said, David, let me ask you a question. You really believe that Jesus is physically alive today? I said, yeah, he is. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, physically, in bodily form, then we would be, this, what we're doing here this morning is pointless, is what Paul says. And this is the doctrine of the resurrection. 
We have hope in this life because Jesus says, because I live, you live. And this is what Epaphras brought back to to Colossae. And he told the Colossians, there's no reason to live for the world anymore. But all the more to live for Christ. So, ultimately, the reality behind many of these prayers that Paul and Timothy and Epaphras are praying is that they're, they're witnessing this indestructible expansion of the kingdom of God going from city to city. No one can stop the expansion of this kingdom. They beat them. They set them on fire. They behead them. And still the gospel goes through every single city. And it's happening today. Try as you might to create a foreign policy that will stamp out any believer, any Christian, any body of believers of Christians. And the only thing that you'll get is more churches. And so this is because the Lord promised, I will build my church. So we asked this morning, what is prayer? And in our public doctrine, which is called the Shorter Catechism, we're told that prayer is an offering up of our desires. And we're going to see that with Paul, his desire. If you start reading between the lines with what Paul is saying, you get to see what, where his heart is going, what, his, what, what makes him tick. He's offering up his desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Prayer comes to the Lord to acknowledge our helplessness, to exalt his power, to magnify his faithfulness, to celebrate his steadfast love, to proclaim his self-sufficiency and our insufficiency. Prayer comes to the Lord to declare that there is no God except the Lord. And so this morning, as we come to Colossae, we'll look at the prayer for the Colossians and we'll look at his purpose in his prayer. We'll look at not only the prayer, but we'll look at the purpose and then eventually we'll get to the proof. And we'll look more at that next week at the proof next week, the evidences of their faith. But for our purposes this morning, we'll look at verse nine, where Paul begins and he says, If you have your Bibles, look with me. Verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we always happen to find or catch Paul in the middle of a sentence when it comes to his prayers. He says, And so, from the day we heard, heard what? Heard everything that came before, of their faith, of their hope, of their love. To have faith in Christ is a miracle. That's right. That's something that we need to understand. It's not just walking down this aisle and saying, I believe in raising your hands so everyone looks at you and you're singled out as the person that made a profession of faith. No, to have faith in Christ is a gift that the Lord gives to you. The preaching of the word goes out and tells all sinners and calls all sinners to repent. Turn around, do an about face and come to Christ. And there are only two reactions. Either you're going to go the other way or you're going to come to him. And when you come to him and you say, I want you, the Lord says, well, I gave you that gift of faith. They believed. They had hope. They had, first in verse four, he says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love that you have for all the saints. Again, this is another miracle. This is what he's hearing in verse 9. This is what, this is what he's pointing to. He's hearing of their love that they have for all of the saints. Now, again, this is another miracle because it's not natural to get people from all walks of life, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, together in one room to worship Jesus Christ himself when they have nothing in common with each other. Why would you go out of your way for the person sitting across from you? Even to the point of laying down your life. This is the kind of love that Paul is describing. This kind of love people have begun to hear that this is the kind of love that was coming out of the Colossian congregation. That people would willingly lay their lives down for one another. Yes, you ask someone to go to the store for you, they go to the store. You ask someone to pick something up for you, you pick them up. You ask them to go to LaGuardia Airport to pick up a friend. You go and you pick up the friend, even though you have to sit and fight through traffic. But to lay your life down, to lay your life down and say, I will die for you, even though I met you three days ago because you're a believer. The only way that that can happen is if the work of the Spirit is producing love between believers. And that is why if you take a Christian in Long Island and bring them clear across the world to meet another Christian in the middle of Moscow, Russia, the only thing that will keep them together is the love of Christ. Mm. And so he heard of their love. And because of the hope that's laid out for you in heaven, and they believe that hope. This isn't an easy believism hope. This is a, a, a real hope that is grounded in the living Lord Jesus Christ. And so since that day, who's the we? Since the day that we heard, who's the we? It's Paul, it's Timothy, and it's Epaphras. How do we know it's Epaphras? Because he says it in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, as he's closing his letter, He says, Epaphras, who is one of you. In other words, he's not from my side of town. He's from Colossae. He's one of your guys. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus, greets you always struggling, or where we get the the word, agonizing. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. The goal of Epaphras' prayer, the goal of Paul's prayer, the goal of Timothy's prayer is that they would stand mature in Christ and they would be fully assured in all of the will of God. Well, let's take the negative of that. What does it mean to stand immature in Christ? That means, like the Colossians were susceptible to, that you hear all these strange teachings from different religions coming in and you are so ready to believe this or believe that or see what's new or what religion is new and what philosophy is new. And Paul says, no, stand firm on what I taught you or what Epaphras taught you. But what about assurance? Well, if someone were to come up to you and say, what do you believe? Tell me, what, your li- what is your life all about? Do you love Christ? 
The grounding of that assurance is not, yeah, I made a decision last week. No. The grounding of that assurance is the faith, the confidence, the reality that Christ lives and that you live because he lives. And so Paul prays for them and he says, look, look right there in verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you. We haven't stopped. In other words, when he heard, this is a congregation that Paul never met. FYI, by the way, he's never met these people. There is no way he's making his way all the way from Ephesus or even Rome over 100 miles to Colossae right now because he's on a mission to get to Rome if he's not already there. But since he heard of them, he has turned up the ante, so to speak, and started praying for them. Why? Why do we need prayer? Well, if you go through the letter, and we're not going to go through the entire letter this morning, but if you go through the letter, what was happening with the church at Colossae? Well, there were these people that believed that they were religious, they were spiritual, they believed in the gods of the heavens. If they looked up at the sky, they were trying to explain the world around them. And so they believed that there were these gods that existed. Now, in America, we don't really believe those things because we're so satisfied with Netflix and all the other things that we see around us. We're satisfied with the work of our hands, and that's become our gods. But for them, they believed they were trying to explain the world around them. And so they said the fullness of deity, the fullness of gods existed beyond what we can imagine, what we can see deep in the stars and the heavens. And those are our mediators between us and the divine. If you want something close to that, go to South Beach. (laughs) And you think I'm playing, but there there are CEOs of people. When I lived in South Beach... Um, there were CEOs of companies that I met. I mean, these guys drove Ferraris and Lamborghinis and they had all the money in the world. And one day I asked one of them, um, I said, what do, you, what do you got going on this weekend? And he goes, well, I wear these crystals because I believe in the energies and I believe I can connect with the divine. And we're going to go to the beach tonight and have a dance party around a fire. It's not something that you would expect a CEO of a, of a, of a corporation to say. But what that tells me is that everyone was created to worship. And what we do is we take what we know of God and we suppress the truth about God in exchange for something else. We're trying to reach out to something beyond us. And you know when this really happens? This happens when crisis hits our lives. Where all of a sudden, when crisis hits our lives, we turn away from ourselves and we say, If there is a God out there somewhere, please help me because I can't process this X, Y, Z. So the hope of the gospel comes to the people at Colossae who are beginning to hear all of these things. And now Paul begins to use their language. He prays for them and he consistently prays for them, asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, you might think that's a throwaway phrase, but if you're from Colossae and you're hearing this, what you're hearing is that he's praying that you would have knowledge. There are some people in this world who make a premium off of secret knowledge. 
pay me this and I'll tell you more. Pay me this and I'll tell you more. Talk to me or come to my house and I'll give you more. Just give me X, Y, Z. And so the people that were beginning to infiltrate the church at Colossae believed that they had this secret knowledge. Translation today, where do we hear something like this? Trust the science. It's the same way that they used it back then. They said, trust me. I know. What do you know? What do you know, teacher, religious teacher? And they'll tell you, I know the deep things about the gods. And they were characterized by their intellectualism. So they were smart people, respectable people, scholars in their own right. So you said, well, they study, they spend all of their time in the books. They have to know something. I mean, I don't have the time like they do. So because they study they might, they, and they lead a life that looks holy, they may as well, we may as well listen, right? And Paul says, no. Don't for a second listen. They claim to have this knowledge, but I will ask the Lord to give you knowledge, the knowledge of his will. Look with me at this one word. It's a three-letter word, and I, I do this all the time with my daughter. It's a three-letter word that starts with a Y and a U, and it has an O in the middle. He says, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. In our English translations, it's a singular word. But if you're reading it in the Greek, he's saying what the Southerners say. We, I'm praying for y'all. Why is that significant? Why am I zeroing in on that one particular word? Well, imagine you're coming to church one day and you have this little group of people that say we are holy. They might not come out right and say that, but you're observing them. You know, people have a tendency to people watch. Watch the actions of this person or that person and try to get a read on their body language. And in this church at Colossae, you have this little group of people who are spiritual. Oh, they, they, they talk nice, they, they speak well, they hold themselves well, they come to all the prayer meetings. They must be godly. And then you talk to them and they're like, ah, well, you're not really on our level, so we'll just give you a little bits of what we know about religion, about God, and we might invite you over to our house in the next, sometime in the next six years. <laughs> Maybe. The knowledge that they had belonged to that little clique. And this is what we call, when it was fully grown and fully blossomed in the history of the church, Gnosticism. Gnosis, knowledge, this is where we get secret knowledge from. It was, a, it was only for a certain group of people. But what does Paul ask? Look at what Paul asks for. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for all of you. Mm. That all of you would know the knowledge of whose will? Epaphras? No. Timothy? No. God's will. It is possible, and this is because the Lord shows no partiality to know the will of God. And it's not restricted to the pastors. It's not restricted to the seminary students. It's not restricted to the intelligent people of the congregation. This is for all people. Everyone is invited to come to the Lord, 
Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All who are thirsty, come to me, is what, what Jesus says. Not just the Colossian intelligentsia. And so he says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Because as you navigate this life with these destructive doctrines and philosophies, you need to know how to order and regulate your life according to what pleases God and not what pleases your boss. Listen to the Lord. Listen to what he says. Listen and order your life, not according to the gods out there, but to the God who has come down and condescended by giving his son for you. If that is Paul's prayer, what then is his purpose? We looked at the prayer, but now he has a goal. An aim, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. You mean to tell me that not only this person can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, but all of the congregation can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Yes. Every single member. And this is why coming together for corporate worship, coming together on a Sunday morning is not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time. It's not something that religious that you check off of your box and you say, okay, now that I'm done with church, I can go to the beach. Now that I'm done with church, I can just live my life. Let me live. Right? This is what the world says. But God's people want nothing more. This is a mark of a believer. God's people want nothing more than to be with God's people because they have come to understand that God has saved them. God has rescued them from hopelessness, from despair. You go to work tomorrow morning, ask your coworker who doesn't know the Lord, what are you living for? The response will get you, that's a deep question, ask me after four cups of coffee, right? Or, let's talk about that. Let's talk about it. For Paul, he hadn't met them face to face, but this is his goal. This is his aim. This is where his mind is beelining towards. He is saying, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in the middle of a place where all of Asia is steeped in this occult kind of worship and the worship of everything else but the Lord. So I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. You know, the word that they had, that these Colossians who believed in some higher power had, is, that, is this word play Roma. And again, it's not to pull rank or anything like that, but you need to understand this because Paul uses specific language that would have connected with them. The fullness of the gods that filled the heavens is what they believed were the play Roma. And you know who was part of that? fullness, that pantheon of God, that justice league of God's Jesus. So you ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, sure. I love Jesus. But for them, for this group, it was Jesus plus everyone else. So Jesus had to be part of this pantheon of gods. He was just one of many things or persons that we can go to to pray to and just add on to our religion so that we can feel more spiritual. 
than anything else. But what does Paul do? He takes that word, the pleroma, the fullness, and he says, I want that fullness to be in you as you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Not just a group of people in the church, but all of you, fully pleasing him. And not only that, but you are walking in in such a way that in all that you do, the aim of your life is to glorify the God who made you. You know, we, 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 we understand what that's like. Working for a, a tech company at one point where we fixed phones, you realize that whenever your phone isn't working the way you want it to work, the way it's designed to work, the first response is to throw it against the wall because you're frustrated right? When your car is not functioning in the way that it's supposed to, the first response is anger and frustration. And sometimes you just break down and cry. And the reality is we all believe and know to be true that everything that's designed must be used according to its purpose. But what about you? The Lord designed you, and the Lord has created you to glorify Him, and not just to glorify Him, He doesn't leave it there, but to enjoy Him. And not just one time, or two times, or three times, but forever. You ask the guys who are in the BMW clubs, and you say, what are you living for? My BMW. You ask the guys who are living for the nightlife, what are you living for? The nightlife. You ask the people in South Beach, what are you living for? And they say, the moment. What are you living for this morning? What are you doing? Is your life fully pleasing to him? No, it's not because I'm a sinner. We're all sinners, I get that. But there is a sense when you come to Christ, you realize you're never going to live up to the standards that the Lord has set up for us. So where do, where do your eyes go? It goes to Christ. Amen. He satisfied the law. He lived a perfect life. He died in your place. And to reject that is to reject the only means that God has ordained and set up for you to live. Why would you walk contrary to how you've been created? Next week, we'll look at the proof and the evidences of their living and what he hopes to want. But one of the things to draw this to a close that we need to look at and think about is that Paul is praying. Look at what he's praying for. He's praying that the Lord would provide the means for their perseverance so that they are fully pleasing to him. And from those things, these are some of the things that I want to drive home. Number one, it is a privilege and a major responsibility to be in prayer for one another for the right things. 
you notice that there are a lot of, there's, there's a lot of overlap in Paul's prayers. If you're looking through all through all of Paul's letters, you'll see that there's overlap. He wants them to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants them to know the Lord. He wants them to walk in a manner pleasing to God, whether you're in Ephesus or in Philippi or in Colossae. Why? Because he understands and knows that this is what they need the most. Not the promotion, not the fingers crossed that you get the house, but that in the process of the afflictions that you may be going through, you would live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. That you would live according to the design that God has created you to live for, which is for Him. Not for the boyfriends, not for the spouses, not for the cars, not for the promotions, but for Him. And it's a privilege for Paul to pray. It's not reserved for a certain elite who are in the know, but he calls all of them into the presence of God to pray for them. Second, a prayerless Christian, a Christian who doesn't pray. It's very strange, right? It's like you say that you're married, but you never talk to your spouse, right? A prayerless Christian is a person who has the form of godliness but denies the power of God. And Paul places these types of people in the category of false teachers and tells him to avoid such people. He says that in his letter to Timothy. Why has the Lord laid upon us this series of Paul's prayers? Why are we going through this? What are we even doing? It's because he loves you. The Lord loves you. You go to Islam. Does Allah love his people? No. You go to be a Jehovah's Witness. Do you know that God loves you? No. You have to work in order to make sure that you're in that 144,000. There's no grace there. It's all works. But we have been saved by grace, not of our works, lest any of us should boast and say, I earned my way into heaven. No, nobody does. A prayerless Christian is a person who has the form of godliness, but denies the power of God. Do you say that you're a Christian, but you don't pray at all? Do you say that you are a believer, but you set up no time? I'm not talking about the shooting up the arrows of prayer as you're going to work and as you're on the, the, the sunken meadow parkway. I'm talking about specific times where you've said, I'm turning off my phone, I'm getting away from people just for an hour or a half hour, and I'm praying. There's a, there's a, uh, a story of a man who is the vice president of General Electric. Actually, I was at the church where he had passed away and they were doing a funeral for him. And one of the stories that the pastors told us is of how this man in his late 60s came to know the Lord, but his wife didn't. And every day he would come back home and he would go into his study just for two hours and, he would, and his wife would hear him talking, 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 talking. And she didn't know what was going on. And he would spend every afternoon for two hours in his study. And after about a month or so, she had it. She was like, all right, who is this girl? (laughs) Who is she? Who are you talking to? 
I always hear you talking. You come home, you don't say hello, and every time you come out of that study, you're always in a better mood than when you came in. Who is she? And he said, I came to know Christ. Wow. I came to know Christ, and I wish it was sooner, but in God's providence, I came to know Christ. And because I came to know Christ, I would come home, get away from work for my lunch hour, just to pray and read my Bible so that I would know him. And he led her to the Lord, and shortly after, he went to be with the Lord. And that was the legacy that he left. Not that he was a vice president for General Electric in Greenville, South Carolina, but that at the end of his life, he came to know Christ. How do you gain stability? I I realize that the title of the sermon in the bulletin is a prayer of stability. How do you gain stability in all of this? Well, if you turn to chapter 4, verse 12 again, you'll realize that Epaphras is praying and agonizing in his prayers for them, that they would be mature and that they would be assured. You gain stability in this life by humbling yourself before the Lord. Committing yourself to agonize over the spiritual welfare of your brothers and sisters, asking for desire to pray for them and strength to pray for them so that together we are pleasing to him. Why? Because of Christ, our intercessor, who always lives to make intercession for you. If you're not a believer this morning, the Lord calls you to him. Come away from the world. There's nothing valuable in this world. You will live this entire life in the hopelessness that this world can provide for you. You can go to Spain to some of these concerts and live in the moment. You can listen to the music in your AirPods. You can do whatever it is to make you feel exhilarating. And at the end of your life, What do you have to show for how you live? When we come to Christ, it's not what we know. It's who we know. And that's how you get in, by knowing Christ. So come to Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the prayers of Paul, who shows us how we should pray. We thank you for the pastoral heart that we see in him. And Lord, teach us to have hearts like that. Mm -hmm. Help us to love one another enough to lay our lives down the way Christ has laid his life down for us. And we pray that you would have mercy on us, that whatever was not profitable in this sermon, we pray that you would blow it away. But Lord, drive these words into our hearts. Drive the love of Christ into our hearts, we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.